Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join me today. Brian Hyde at your service. And what an incredible amount of uh, information we've got to cover today. I, I say that every time, and it's, it's only because it's true. I guess I should make that clear. It's only because uh, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely the truth, and, and we've just got a lot to go on with. I want to start with a thought, though. Um, this was courtesy of uh, Caitlin Johnstone. She had a marvelous uh, email that went out this weekend uh, and it was just thoughts on, you know, the passing scene. In fact, uh, how did she put it? Thoughts about life, politics and humanity. But there was something she said in here that just knocked me back in my seat. You ready for this? It's perspective. This is the kind of perspective every one of us should have as as we start the week And so uh, thank you, Caitlin Johnstone, for pointing this out, because I think it's easy to miss when we get caught right up in the thick of everything. Here's what she says. She says, we are all hurtling toward death together on a little blue ball through infinite blackness in a universe that none of us understand. But what really matters, what really, truly, deeply matters is that there are strangers on the Internet who have the wrong opinions. (laughs) <laughs> Ouch. Oh, she she nailed it. She 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 says it uh, just as as straight as it could be. Wow. Okay. Point taken. So I'm going to I'm going to do my part to uh to hopefully uh be a little bit uh, more in tune with what's going on here and not quite as as quick to to just jump on the bandwagon and uh, and start uh, getting upset about everything that comes along, especially when someone is wrong. And, and here's the funny thing about it. Um, I, I, I venture onto Twitter, and I do this with always a little bit of trepidation just because, in, in my experience, uh, Twitter is a marvelous way to get snippets of information. I mean, there are a ton of people communicating on there at any time. Here's the downside, though. There are so many people just spoiling for a fight. And so when you make a comment, and I, I did this the other day, I made a comment, uh, something about, uh, uh, you know, the, the right to keep in bar- Basically, I said the Constitution doesn't give us any rights. All it does is acknowledges a pre-existing right that cannot be taken from us. And I've got, uh, I've got some poor soul, um, I believe she's up in Montana, who is just determined. She is trying her best to, to elicit some kind of response, just dangling bait in front of me trying to to bait me into some kind of a response. And I I learned some time ago, it's best to just let stuff like this go. You only give power to your critics when when you have to respond to everything they say. But sometimes it's hard. And and I, like anybody, I I fight the urge to, to, to put people in their place, especially when they're being pushy. It just really, uh, it bugs me. So bear with me. I'm going to do the best I can not to uh, succumb to to that temptation. But it's just it's a reminder for me that, you know, as much time as we spend arguing, debating and and trying to put other people in their place regarding whatever uh, the, you know, the topic of the moment may be. In the grand scheme of things. Does it really matter I mean, there's, I've long laughed at the, the cartoon of the guy sitting there on his computer and it's obvious his wife is calling him to bed and he's like, I'm sorry, honey, I, I can't come to bed yet. Someone is wrong on the Internet. And yeah, I feel I've been that guy 
I've been the guy who's, you know, trying to, to, to set things straight, to valiantly contend for the truth. And, and sometimes I wonder if, if it's having the kind of effect that I think it's having. Something I've been kind of slow to learn, but uh, eventually has, has gotten through my head, is that uh, if you're interested in speaking the truth, challenging the narrative, poking holes in the official narrative, which I believe is intended to mislead us, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to go about that. Beating people into submission rhetorically, I'll admit it feels good. You know, to have a good verbal throwdown is uh, it's it's quite a thing. But it doesn't really convince anybody. And what I have found instead is that uh, the best way to get someone to consider the truth is share it with them. Okay, so don't be shy, but speak the truth. But here's the hard part. Speak it with love. Don't need to dominate them. Don't need them to agree with you. Lose that need to win. Just give them some truth and then walk away. Let them consider it. Let them weigh it out or throw it aside, whatever they want to do. Because for some reason, when people are able to arrive at the truth at their own pace, that's when it sticks. That's when they actually will sit there and go, okay, wait wait a minute. Now, this actually makes sense. And I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me by, by using this approach, have come up to me at some later time and, and said some version of, I've had time to think about what we talked about. And they'll either say, I can see your point, which is, is wonderful, whether they agree or not. Some of them will even say, I get what you're saying, and I agree. Now, that's rare. It's not a given. It's not like, oh, this is a surefire way. You know, the, this is this is the simple way to, to just, you know, twist other people or bend them to, to your point of view. That's not really the point, is it? The idea is to get people thinking about these kind of things at a level that they don't normally think about. I'm going to share a couple of quick thoughts here from uh, from Caitlin Johnstone. Just uh, you, I want you to understand, I think she is a brilliant person. And there are some things that I just cannot see eye to eye with her on. She thinks religion is probably the greatest curse that has ever happened to mankind. She thinks it's maybe just a another system of control. And you know what? I have to concede that in some cases it can be. And has been historically. She has uh, an environmental bent that, you know, we are on the verge of destroying humanity that I don't agree with. But there's enough common ground that I see with her. Uh, Here's one. Listen to this observation. Tell me tell me that you might not find this, you know, agreeable the way the, the way that she puts this. She says, as long as the plutocratic class is able to use its media influence to control people's minds. Elections will still go toward maintaining the status quo, even if the U.S. has a perfect election system. In other words, the narrative control must be ended, and this can be done by weakening public trust in the plutocratic propaganda machine. Trust in the mass media is already at an all-time low, while our ability to network and share information is at an all-time high. And she says we just need to exacerbate that. Let me think. What else has she got here? Oh, this I thought this was kind of an interesting warning. She says, it's not just that the powerful are constantly manipulating our minds with propaganda. It's that the science for doing so is constantly expanding. So as AI or artificial intelligence improves, 
narrative control will get exponentially more advanced. And what that means for people like you and me is we have no choice but to change the way our minds work. Now, human minds are preconditioned to select for cognitive ease. All of us, including me, are subject to this. And that means we preference the familiar and unchallenging. Like you, I love things that agree with what I already believe to be true. And it's hard to look at evidence that might point to well, what I believe, at least in this instance, may have been a lie. That's a hard thing to consider. And I see people going through this on a day-to-day basis, and you know what? Every one of them suffers at some level for daring to ask those kind of questions. But I think it's really worthwhile. Let's see, one more thought here. One more thought from her. Here we go. She says, Journalism is like art. If you do it with the goal of becoming rich and famous, it's going to suck. Yet there are all kinds of mechanisms in place within news media to reward this precise mentality and to ensure that these types of journalists are elevated above all the others. Gosh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great stuff here. Okay, one more. This is the last one, I promise. Most Western news headlines about foreign conflicts and uprisings can simply be reduced to either something advantageous happened to the U.S. centralized power alliance, and that's good, or Something disadvantageous happened to the U.S. Centralized Power Alliance, and that's bad. It's basically the same as watching a group of sports fans comment on the behavior of their favorite team, except instead of fans, it's paid propagandists, and instead of a game, she says it's a slow-moving Third World War. But remember, <laughs> the most important thing, the what really, truly matters is that there are strangers on the Internet that have the wrong opinions, and by gosh, That's where you and I should be focusing our energy. Thank you, Caitlin Johnstone, for that uh, tongue-in-cheek reminder. We all get the same amount of time, but uh, it's important we don't waste it. I think she's pointing out one of the biggest time wasters of all. We will take a break. We'll continue. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Now, I know every time you tune in this program or this podcast, you are probably asking yourself, what secrets of the universe will Brian unveil to us today? And today is a good day. Actually, this is, you, you are in luck because I, I believe I have I believe I've tapped into some of the better ones that, that are worth sharing. And, and here's the kicker. Not uh, not many of them are actually political. So. You know, we got that going for us. So among the things we will be covering today is we will talk about how to take the perfect nap. I know if 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 I had ever dreamed that there would be a day where I would look at a nap and go, ooh, ooh, this is relevant to my interests. I probably would have uh, would have thought, oh, please just, you know, drown me before you before I get to that point. But no, I'm there. I'm there as a kid. Worst thing you could do is tell me, go take a nap. Go to your room. Go go take a nap. Stay home. <laughs> now that's what I aspire to. 
Everybody else wants to do something. I'm like, nah, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather go to my room. I'd rather take a nap. So we'll talk about how to take the perfect nap. Ten science-backed tips for more productive shut-eye. Also, I have a great love of uh, disruptive technology. Now, what what you might ask is disruptive technology. Um, well, look at the way that a lot of people do their shopping today. You know, how many things do you buy online? I mean, no offense, Walmart, you know, since you're no longer going to carry certain kinds of ammunition. That's uh, that's all fine and dandy. But I can't tell you the last time I went to Walmart or a comparable store with a sporting goods section to purchase ammunition. Why? Because there just is such a better variety, better prices, um, more bulk options than what I could possibly find at Walmart. So I think I'm going to start with this. We'll share this with you, and then we'll talk a little bit about how we could have had cell phones 40 years earlier, except uh, the technology was more or less held back. But 100 years ago today, the, mo- the world's most disruptive technology. This is from Nick Colas of DataTrack Research, who says the history of U.S. consumerism starts with the Sears Roebuck mail-order catalog. Yes, the very same Sears that is struggling to emerge from bankruptcy today. Now, this was uh, written, I guess this was published just recently. I thought Sears was done. I thought stick a fork in it and they were finished. But he says 125 years ago, the company was every bit the disruptive innovator. So this is a brief summary of how Sears Roebuck became this disruptive, innovative technology. Mail order became viable in the late 1800s. Because of the expansion of the U.S. rail system, plus post office regulations that allowed for catalog mailers at one cent per pound and rural free delivery. So back in 1894, holy cow, 125 years ago, the first Sears catalog was published with the slogan, the cheapest supply house on earth. Now, its target audience were the folks who lived in rural America, which in 1900 would have been about 60% of the U.S. population. This was a deeply underserved community, often with just a thinly stocked general store to supply all their needs. The 1903 catalog actually added the commitment of your money back if you're not satisfied, which, if you think about it, was a brilliant way of reassuring customers that if you're buying this product sight unseen, you still have some backing here. If you're not happy with it, fine. We'll, you know, bring it back and we'll give you back your money. That made it a viable way to shop. Now, the author here says, We recently bought a 1920 Sears catalog from an eBay seller. Printed in late 1919, it's a fascinating snapshot of American life 100 years ago. And at 1,493 pages, it's a remarkably wide-angle view of that image. In studying this early Bible of the American consumer, he says three points struck us as particularly salient when comparing 1920 to 2019. Number one, the catalog was published 25 years after Sears began its mail order business. Why is this interesting? Well, because there's, you can compare it to Amazon. Amazon is 25 years old today. The scope of the Sears offering in 1920 was every bit as vast as Amazon is today, meaning the company offered everything from women's, men's, children's clothing to furniture, appliances, jewelry, home entertainment, toys, even entire houses and farm buildings. 
Furthermore, their merchandising method was exactly the same as what you see on Amazon's website. Every item for sale had a picture, description, and price. The catalog is organized by the type of product offered for sale, something akin to if you like this item, you might also like this. Now, there was one key difference here. Sears offered credit on expensive items. So if you wanted to buy a new Freedom coal wood stove, you could pay $86.50 today, which would be worth about, uh, that'd be worth about 1100 bucks, or make a first payment of $10 and then $7.50 a month thereafter till you'd paid $95.50. That's a 7.1% and, <laughs> excuse me, annualized interest rate. In case you're wondering, Amazon, of course, takes credit cards. So the conclusion here is Sears was actually a more ambitious business model than Amazon when it started. On day one, it was already selling a wide array of products, not just books. And in terms of consumer offerings, Amazon is now right where Sears was in 1920. Yes, there are more SKUs on the website, but in terms of what people needed in 1920, the Sears catalog is remarkably complete. So that's the that's the first point that struck them when comparing mail order in 1920 versus online purchasing in 1919. And that is the comparison to Amazon. Number two, early stage technology. See, the new technologies 100 years ago were electric powered appliances and phonograph players. Radio was still some years off. The only items in the 1920 catalog were Morse code transceivers. Can you imagine the family sitting around? Come on, kids, gather around. We're going to listen to, you know, what's going on in the big city. You ready? <laughs> okay. And apparently the family would know Morse code well enough that the kids would be like, ooh, or maybe they'd all laugh at the same time. Ha <laughs> ha, Jack Benny. <laughs> he really cracked off a good one that time. All right. I digress. A 110-volt vacuum cleaner. Retailed for fifty-seven fifty to sixty-eight dollars in today's money, that'd be roughly seven hundred forty to eight hundred seventy dollars. Now, for reference, a top-rated vacuum on Amazon can be picked up for just seventy bucks today. Wow! A hand crank record player went for thirty dollars for your basic tabletop to two hundred twenty-five dollars for a solid wood stand-up, or three hundred eighty-five dollars, which would be about twenty-nine hundred in today's money. Today, a Bluetooth speaker goes for about 20 bucks. A basic bicycle sold for $53 or $680 in today's money. So the takeaway here is the big difference between 1920s technology and today is how quickly prices come down as demand rises. Part of that is related to infrastructure. For example, in 1920, only 35% of American homes had electricity, but by 1929, 68% were wired for power. That, plus the disruption created by World War II, explains why vacuum cleaners remained expensive and adoption rates below 50% until the late 1940s. The rest, of course, is globalization, both in terms of supply and demand. Number three takeaway is a big idea can go a long way. The 1920 Sears catalog is a relatively early manifestation of a business that continued to grow, build, and prosper for another 50-plus years. In 1974, at the height of its power, Sears built the tallest building in the world in Chicago to house its home office. The company started opening retail stores in the 1920s, predominantly in urban areas to augment its rural business, 
but eventually had thousands of retail locations. And it built its own brands like Craftsman Tools and Kenmore Appliances and Die Hard Automotive Batteries. In 1931, Sears created Allstate Insurance, and by 1934, it had agents in every store. In 1981, it added broker Dean Witter and the real estate company Coldwell Banker. In 1985, it created the Discover Card. It was even an early Internet adopter, developing the Prodigy system with IBM. All right, I got to break away here real quick. We'll come back and finish up this article, but... What an interesting comparison between Amazon and the old Sears catalog from a hundred years ago. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. So I've been sharing this uh, this article about uh, 100 years ago. The cutting-edge technology, the most disruptive technology, was the Sears Roebuck catalog. Now, I don't know if you're old enough to remember what it was like to get these uh, department store catalogs. I remember distinctly, though. We would get the Sears catalog. It was... It was pretty thick. I don't think we had the 1,400-pager, but um, I remember as a kid... Having Sears, uh, seems like J.C. Penney. I don't think we got Montgomery Ward, but depending on where you live in the country, that that might have been a part of what would show up in your mailbox. But I do remember the big, thick catalog. And yes, I would sit down and I would just go through there and just make the list of, okay, these are the things that I would want. And uh, I want, you know, I go to the sporting goods section. I want this BB gun. I would like this tennis racket. This tent would be good. This canoe would be fabulous for what I have planned. And Oh, man, talk about the stuff to feed a kid's imagination. But it's just so strange to think. I mean, we're talking, that was, that was you know, close to 50 years ago. I was looking at that. A hundred years ago, though, there were a lot of people getting the cutting-edge technology via the Sears catalog. And the whole, the whole gist of this, this article, which, again, identifies three points when you compare 1920 to 2019... The Sears catalog compares very favorably to Amazon in our time, Amazon being 25 years old now. The early stage technology, it's amazing what people were willing to pay for new technology then versus what new technology is costing us today. As the demand has gone up, as the economies of scale have kicked in, prices have come down. What an amazing thing. And then that a big idea can go a long way. The lesson here, according to the article, is that even if Sears is now a tiny shadow of its former self, it pays to remember that this country had an almost 100-year run of success. And it wasn't just any old, you know, ho-hum, yes, you know, smooth sailing 100 years. This company survived and prospered during two world wars and the Great Depression, living long enough to benefit from the post-World War II boom. All from one big idea. A mail-order catalog. Now, let me see if I can tie this in for just a moment with something else that I see going on around us. And, and I'm just going to reference the, the fact that, uh, you know, Walmart says, well, we're no longer going to stock or carry certain types of handgun ammunition. And I was looking at a list of the ammo they're selling. And basically, it's most of the popular handgun calibers and most of the popular AR-15 calibers, 223, etc., 
They don't they don't want to carry it. And that's their right. It's their business. I personally I think it's virtue signaling. Look at us. Look how woke we are. Look how in tune we are with America's pain. But the truth be told, I don't buy ammunition from them. I'm much more inclined to go online. And it's been that way for, well, I'd say about at least for for me, probably close to 12 years now, maybe a little bit longer. I love my local gun stores. I really do. And the people who work there are wonderful people. Sometimes the prices can be a little bit, um, how can I say this? Uh, Assertive. (laughs) They can be a little bit high. But it is incredible to be able to just go online. And by the way, one of our sponsors here at the Loving Liberty Radio Network is Ammo.com. To go on to compare, you know, I want this specific load for this specific caliber and in this specific quantity. And you can almost always find exactly the deal that you're looking for. Sometimes there will be a special. Ooh, that's a good buy. Maybe I'll stock up on that. I think it's very worthwhile. And it's something I strongly recommend people avail themselves of. In fact, I'm going to go one step further. And if you think I'm weird for doing this, I'm okay with that. Just, you know, call me weird. I think that right now we are in a very unique time in the sense that um, there's there's never been a better time to stock up on ammunition. Now, why would a person stock up on ammunition? Is that just, you know, are you expecting trouble? You're going to go start a war or something? No, it's just a recognition that uh, there are times when ammo can be difficult to come by. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at Barack Obama, but there were a lot of fears when he was elected in 2008 that uh, there was going to be a lot of uh, heavy-duty gun control legislation coming along. And so there was a run, not just on ammunition, but on reloading supplies, and and there was this incredible uh, dearth of ammo. And if you're a shooter, you probably remember there for for a period of several years, even finding 22 shells was tough. And if you could find them, you know, there were there were enterprising. We called them neckbeards guys who'd go out and buy up everything they could get when Walmart or somebody would get in a shipment. I'd buy every box of 22 ammo and then go on eBay and sell it for, you know, 100 bucks a pop or whatever they could get out of it. OK, they're being entrepreneurial, so I, I can't fault them for that, but. I wasn't necessarily thinking the kindest thoughts toward them at the time. My point is simply this. There for a while, ammo was in pretty short supply. Even with factories churning it out around the clock, it was tough to find. Right now, it is plentiful. It is cheap. It is able to be delivered to your doorstep. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to get your hands on a copy of like uh, the Shotgun News or something like that from uh, 20, 25 years ago. But if you ever have, you'll sit there and you'll look at the thing. Okay, let's see, I can buy a case of 1,000 rounds of 308 ammo. Oh, that's under 200 bucks. And this is good stuff. This is Radway Green Ammo. Some of the best 308 ammo the British ever made. 200 bucks. You know what it'll cost you now? Probably double that, maybe more. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Oh, look at this. I could buy a Norinco SKS rifle for only 80 bucks. Huh. And a thousand rounds of ammo for only 60 bucks a case. (laughs) 
Yeah, that wistful feeling that you feel when you hear of prices that low, that's the way we're going to be feeling someday as we look back on today. So I'm not trying to gin up fear so much as I'm just trying to get you to recognize we're in a very calm and placid moment where there is an abundance of ammunition available. This is the time to sock it away. It's not going to go bad. It will always hold value. Someone will always want it, whether that's to barter for it or to simply buy it outright. I feel I feel safer telling you that if you were to uh, if you were to set aside a few cases of ammunition. It would serve you as well as if you were to set aside, oh, I don't know, several ounces of gold or even silver. Except the ammunition has more utilitarian value. And is more divisible than the gold and silver. So let me uh, put a shameless plug in here for ammo.com. Go check out their website. When you make a purchase there, by the way, there will be a little drop down menu at checkout. And they will ask you, hey, would you like to benefit any of these organizations? Uh, by They'll donate a 1% of the purchase to these organizations in the drop-down menu. I think there's 17 different organizations. Loving Liberty Radio Network is one of them. So if you want to send a little bit of love, 1% of love back our way, we would sure appreciate it. And we would, uh, we would greatly, greatly encourage you to go and, and do some business with ammo.com. By the way, if you're looking for good intellectual ammo, the articles on that website are absolutely worth your time. But they have a tremendous variety of rifle, shotgun, pistol, rimfire, ammunition as well. All right, I think, I've, I think I have beat that one to death. So how about this? We could have had the cell, phones, the cell phone 40 years earlier had the technology not been intentionally prevented from getting off the ground for decades. This is an article that was actually published a couple of years ago, uh, back in June of 2017, written by Thomas W. Hazlitt, who says the basic idea of the cell phone was introduced to the public back in 1945, not in popular mechanics or in science, but in the down-home Saturday Evening Post. Millions of citizens would soon be using handy talkies, declared J.K. Jett, head of the Federal Communications Commission. Licenses would have to be issued, but that process won't be difficult, they were told. The revolutionary technology Jett promised would be formulated within months, but permission to deploy it would not. In fact, the government would not allocate the spectrum to realize the engineer's vision of cellular radio until 1982. And licenses authorizing the service would not be fully distributed for another seven years. And that is one heck of a bureaucratic delay. So I don't know, as you most people I know of, even my mom, who's an octogenarian, has a cell phone. I think you'd be rare to find somebody who doesn't have one. But did you know this bit of history about uh, how the cell phone came about, came about and how it could have been in our hands much, much earlier? Well, we'll talk about that when we continue after these messages. And why the bureaucratic delay? Whose interest did that serve? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. <laughs> this is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, let's talk about the cell phone. I figure this is a pretty safe topic since it's uh, probably a pretty safe bet that you have a cell phone. You might be listening to uh, the Loving Liberty Radio Network on our free app on your cell phone. I don't know. Or maybe you're listening to the podcast on your cell phone. What an amazing thing to have at our disposal. But before there were cell phones, yeah, there were telephones, but I had no idea that the, the technology, radio cellular phones, could be traced back to the 1940s. Apparently, there was the Mobile Telephone Service, or MTS, launched in 1946. This technology required uh, unwieldy and expensive equipment. The transceiver could fill the trunk of a sedan, and its networks faced very tight capacity constraints. In the beginning, the largest MTS markets had no more than 44 channels. Even as late as 1976, Bell Systems Mobile Network in New York could host just 545 subscribers. Even at sky-high prices, there were still waiting lists for subscriptions. Cellular networks were an ingenious way to expand service dramatically, so a given market would be split into cells with a base station in each. These stations located on towers to improve line of sight with mobile phone users were able to both receive wireless signals and to transmit them. The base stations themselves were linked together generally by wires and connected to networks delivering plain old telephone service. Now, the advantages of this architecture were profound because mobile radios could use less power because they needed only to reach the, near, the nearest base station. They didn't need to reach a mobile phone clear across town. So not only did this save battery life, but the transmission stayed local, leaving other cells quiet. A connection in one cell would be passed to an adjacent cell, and then the next as the mobile user moved through space. The added capacity came from reusing frequencies from cell to cell. And the cells could be split, yielding even more capacity. So in an MTS system, each conversation required a channel covering the entire market. But only a few hundred conversations could happen at once. A cellular system could create thousands of small cells and support hundreds of thousands of simultaneous conversations. So when AT&T wanted to develop or start developing cellular in 1947, the FCC rejected the idea, believing that spectrum could be best used by other services that weren't in the nature of convenience or luxury. And this view that this would be a niche service for a tiny user base persisted clear into the 1980s. Land Mobile, the generic category that covered cellular, was far down on the FCC's list of priorities. Back in 1949, it was assigned just 4.7% of the spectrum in the relevant range. Now, broadcast TV, by comparison, was allotted 59.2%, and government uses were a full 25%. TV broadcasting had become the FCC's mission, and Land Mobile was considered a lark. Yet Americans could have enjoyed all the broadcasts they would watch in, say, 1960, and had a cellular phone, or had cellular phone service, too. But instead, TV was allocated far more bandwidth than it ever used, with enormous deserts of vacant television assignments, a vast wasteland, if you will, blocking mobile wireless access for more than a, gen than a generation. So to put this into perspective, how empty was this spectrum across America's 210 television markets? 81 channels originally allocated to TV created 17,010 slots for stations. From this, 
the FCC planned in 1952 to authorize 2,002 TV stations. But by 1962, only 603 were broadcasting in the United States. Yet broadcasters vigorously defended all that idle bandwidth. When mobile phone advocates tried to gain access to the lightly used ultra-high frequency band, or UHF, and broadcasters deluged the the commission, arguing ferociously and relentlessly that mobile telephone service was an inefficient use of the spectrum. Now, the author here says it may seem surprising that they were so determined to preserve those vacant frequencies, given that commercial television station station licenses were severely limited, enough to support only three national networks. They might have seen the scores of unused channels as a threat. What if policymakers got serious about increasing competition? Shrinking the TV band by slicing off chunks for mobile phone services could have protected incumbent broadcasters from future television competitors. Why then did they oppose it? The answer? The broadcasters believed they had sufficient veto power to prevent the prospect of competing stations. Meanwhile, they cherished the option value of unused spectrum. This thinking proved prescient. Years later, unoccupied TV frequencies would be awarded to the incumbent broadcasters without payment during the transition to digital television. Meanwhile, MTS was being supplied by licensees called Radio Common Carriers, or RCCs, and the government's policy was to license just two mobile operators per market, typically AT&T and a much smaller competitor. Now, the FCC also distributed private land mobile licenses to companies not in the communications business for strictly internal wireless use. For example, this would allow an airline to coordinate baggage operations at an airport or a freight train to check its track assignments or workers on an offshore oil rig to talk with company personnel at the home office. In 1968, there were 62,000 common carrier phone subscribers, almost equally split between AT&T and collectively about 500 tiny, tiny rivals. Private land mobile licenses were allotted far more bandwidth, about 90% of the spectrum set aside for land mobile, and deployed more phones. But compared with the 326 million U.S. cellular subscriptions that existed by 2012, both of these low-tech services were simply fleas on an elephant. Now, the radio common carriers, the RCCs, intensely opposed cellular, rightly fearing that it would ravage their small-scale, barely profitable operations. And they had a very powerful ally in Motorola, then a pioneering wireless technology company. Both the RCCs and the private land mobile operators were excellent Motorola customers, buying radios that cost thousands of dollars each. Motorola's major rival, AT&T, was excluded from selling land mobile radios by a 1956 antitrust settlement. Protecting its, protecting its dominant market position meant protecting its customers from competition, so Motorola actually worked to deter the cell phone revolution. AT&T's Bell Labs had conceived and developed cellular technology, but passionate as its scientists may have been about mobile phones, the company enjoyed lucrative monopoly franchises in fixed-line telephony. AT&T convinced itself that mobile services would not add much to corporate sales, so it was a lot less aggressive in pushing for the new technology than it might have been. That followed anti-cellular interests to have their, or that allowed anti-cellular activists to have their way with regulators for many years. And while AT&T formally requested a cellular allocation in 1958, 
it was 10 years before the FBC, FCC did respond. In 1970, the agency finally agreed to deploy some new spectrum for the service. It proposed to make room by moving television stations at channels 70 through 83 to lower assignments and cobble together some idle frequencies as well. But the issue was far from settled. From 1970 until 1982, cellular technology would be caught in a vortex of legal chaos, battered by rulemakings and reconsiderations and court verdicts. A 1991 study published by the National Economic Research Associates concluded that had the FCC proceeded directly to licensing from its 1970 allocation decision, cellular licenses could have been granted as early as 1972. In fact, systems could have been operational in 1973. But a lot of businesses had an interest in keeping the FCC bottled up. And it was a Motorola vice president, Marty Cooper, who placed the first cellular call with a mobile handset in 1973. Now, it might as well have been a pocket dial. Motorola's lawyers were placing calls of their own, lobbying FCC bureaucrats to keep cellular networks from being built. Motorola misjudged its own interests, and it would become a leading beneficiary of the new marketplace. By 2006, it was the world's second largest vendor of cell phones, selling more than 200 million units per year. Again, this is an article from Thomas W. Hazlitt, published in Reason Magazine originally, republished on the Foundation for Economic Education's website at fee.org. I had no idea. Sometimes the stuff that uh, that I take for granted on a day-to-day basis makes me feel just a little bit ashamed. I mean, just a little bit, okay? I'm not going to wallow in it, but I, I might I might sit down and dip my toes in it for a minute. Who knew we could have had cellular technology so much earlier, but except for government interfering in the market and people, you know, trying to secure a monopoly or at least uh, protectionism for their existing technologies. They kept things out that might have helped us much, much sooner. Kind of makes you wonder where that sort of thing might be happening today, doesn't it? Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.